You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Joining up to the Comedians Comedian Podcast Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders makes you feel special and cool and it's easy to set up. It's even easy to cancel. And if you have any difficulties, you can email me directly and I personally walk you through it. So you can listen to all the extra content in a very simple way. Once it's set up, all the extras just ping onto your device without needing you to do anything else. You know, like a private podcast. So this is a little extra treat for everyone who supports the show. If you're swamped with podcasts or pushed for time, you can still support the podcast. Just sign up anyway, ignore all the extras and get a hassle-free, warm, fuzzy feeling that lasts forever. Don't miss out. Become an insider at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 250, the quarter millennium of the Comedians Comedian Podcast, the only podcast about comedy. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today to celebrate this, uh, uh, whatever it is, a a 250th, and there's probably some sporting word that I don't understand because it's to do with sport, um, but to celebrate this auspicious occasion there could be no finer guest than Simon the Patrician Evans. Uh, He is someone who I was watching at the beginning of my career as he just destroyed night after night and I'd watch their mouth agape relishing the incredible richness of his writing, the 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 complexity of the tone of his when people talk about a comedian having an angle. Someone like Simon just has has found ground for himself. He's found a voice that is absolutely honest to an element of his character and every word he says there's no space in between any of his punchlines it's all just imbued with this incredible tone that lifts what are already exceptionally good writing exceptionally good jokes into something else again and we'll talk a little bit about the the that kind of um the sort of seniority of act that can be achieved um and we'll talk about um i mean so many things we'll talk about uh, how his life is at odds with his comedy persona um we'll talk about how he continues to evolve and that's something i'm particularly impressed with how um simon has He's continually reinventing himself and now touring and he's got a radio show on Radio 4. Simon Evans goes to market, which I, I highly recommend as well. Um, and there's a bunch of uh, this is a, a, a decent long episode. And uh, we'll talk about politics as well, because Simon's someone uh, who people often 
uh, pigeonhole as a conservative comedian. We'll talk about how that isn't accurate and and actually we'll delve into a little bit about what is accurate about his uh, his political stance and, and the extent to which he uses it or expresses it on stage. And um, this is just a really lovely episode. I'm so proud of it. Thank you for... But I don't need to do all this now. It's only the introduction. But I'm so excited to be celebrating episode 250 in the company of such an erudite, charming, intelligent and very funny man. This is Simon Evans. I tended to have a, an opening passage which would usually be built around a sort of cheerful... Bra- cheerfully brazen prejudice expressed towards a sort of not an ethnic minority, more like a regional thing. So you were yes. playing with that kind of just on the edge of what was acceptable in political correctness. So, you could, like, say in the 1970s, it would have been racist comedy. Now it was like, no, 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 this is just about Geordies, you know, <laughs> family. But, um, yeah, so and that would just expand and expand. And then there, w- there was one about the Welsh that came into the second, uh, which which was initially supposed to be a routine that was. Um, kind of decrying the casual racism expressed towards the Welsh, and then it gradually became an example of that. <laughs> this is a very good uh, illustration of the fact that we often have less, less control over what comes out of our, our mouths than we think we do. But, and, um, and, and that that routine, I should say, is available on. Uh, that's certainly what's what's it called on YouTube? It's called. It's like the three the well, three men and a baby oh, the three, joke. The or three men joke. Yeah, that's in. Or th- yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, three babies joke. That is on YouTube. But that's under my Edinburgh Gala performance, I think. And then the um, the Geordie routine, a slightly slimmed down version of it, was done on the Michael McIntyre Roadshow. So gotcha. they were all eventually got out there, and they, they are on YouTube. Yeah, which is partly why I had to move on. I mean, that's. I suppose that. That's quite. A, it's quite a useful um, discipline. That once stuff gets onto the telly, you you think oh, I suppose I better write something new now because otherwise, you know, I think most of us would quite happily get away with it. You know, yeah, just well, carry I, on using the same. I, I think for comics of uh, your uh, age and experience, you, you sort of get two sorts of comics. You get people who were hacking around the same. 40 minutes yeah. for 20 years yeah. and you get and you know, it might have been an incredible 40 minutes and I, mm. I don't mean people like Noel Britton who specialised in precisely the same 40 minutes I mean people who would kind of who a few years ago would still be turning in the kind of commercial club Friday night set yeah. that they would have done 10 years ago yeah, yeah. and so you've got those people who I think have I imagine have dropped off. They're less on my radar now or they're still mm. working in different circumstances. And then you got the acts like yourself who transformed, who kept kind of learning and growing and, and doing. I mean, I stayed, in, I stayed in the same place for longer than I should have done or wanted to, partly, I think, because um, I got married, had children, moved out of London, and that all became quite... I felt quite that was quite chaotic and it didn't go that smoothly. We moved house about seven times in about four years. Um, and you know, not intentionally, and so on. And I felt like my comedy was actually like one of the solid things that I could turn to in that time. Okay. You know, I, I kind of, at least when I got on stage, I knew what was going to happen. You know, <laughs> it was sort of a reliable, safe place almost. Um, and I did. I, I gradually became aware that uh, a lot of acts, my contemporaries, had moved on to the touring circuit, um, and also that you know that they were a lot of them were developing a panel show game as well, as it were. You know, almost like a separate persona or a tactics. Oh, I see, rather than developing their own show, but developing their their version of themselves on a panel show. Exactly, you know, gaming, yeah, yeah, those skills. 
And um, and I just sort of, I mean, I was like, as, as you suggest, I don't think there's anything remotely ignoble in in just being a superlative twenty minute club performer. And when I got to the point where I could close the comedy store, I did kind of feel like I was at the that was the top of the tree as far as I'd understood it to be. You know, I really wasn't thinking in terms of being a, a, a touring theatre performer. I used to write with Sean Locke. Um, he, um, he, he'd have me to write it with him for uh, 8 out of 10 cats. And it was his kind of... Um, he kind of goaded me, really. He sort of said, you have to move on because otherwise you will just... You know, you'll just calcify. You don't really... I don't think he used that word. But uh, you, you just... You'll become stagnant, you know. When was that? How long ago was that? That was about the time that we were moving to Brighton, actually. So that was 2006, 2007. Okay. And it, it took me a little bit longer even after that to actually get on and do it. But um, maybe actually it was shortly after that. Yeah, we, I, I was making the, the train journey. That's right. And um, anyway, it was, I mean, there, there were various little incidents that kind of just pushed me off, you know, but I'd, I'm not one of those people who strides off purposefully to the next thing. You know, I am one of those people who has to be heaved out of his nest by the by the bigger bird, you know, of fate, <laughs> forced, to, forced to, you know, take flight before the whole thing falls apart underneath you. That's that's funny. That seems at odds with your persona. Yeah. Oh well, I'm, my whole life is at odds with my persona in that respect. I mean, not in all respects, but in terms of being kind of, um, you know, almost military in my uh, self-discipline and routines and uh, no nonsense approach to getting the important things in life done. I'm terrible. I mean, my persona, as with a lot of comedians, I think is partly uh, all the things I'm terrified of becoming and, and also partly all the things I wish I could be. You know, it's a weird, it's not a, a truthful reflection at all, <laughs> except possibly in the other side, you know, but... Uh, except possibly in the... In, in the, the other side, you know, that you just mutter under your breath. Oh, the other side, yes, sorry, yes. yes. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, behind, you know, sort of virtue. But um, I think there's... Yeah, there's a there's a kind of inertia to me, and, and increasingly, as I say, I think when you're younger and you have no um, you have no uh, dependence, and 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 you feel like you have endless stamina, and you feel like you're going to live forever, you can take risks, you know, and you think if this, I, I might just invest six months of my time, and if this doesn't come off, so what, you know? Whereas now, I, you know. Uh, any risk averse. <laughs> <So> <laughs> if I can make this work, I'll stick with it. Do, does that just coming back to the the, the the differences between the persona and, and yourself? Does that mean that your current beard is yeah. a costume that you? No, no, the beard is just laziness. I just don't like shaving really. And no, no, I mean it's a very military beard. Right. It's one of the it's oh, one it? of the, okay. den, the denoters, I think, of your of your transformation. Well, sometimes you... it gets longer and quite bushy, and then my wife gets angry when it when it starts <laughs> to sort of be wider at the chin than I am at the head, you know, and okay. it gets fully at Uncle Albert. Then she gets quite cross about it. <laughs> but um, I mean, I think partly I grew the beard when I when I realised I was going to have to have my head essentially shaved because I just don't I haven't got the right head for just having fully exposed flesh, you know. <laughs> there needs to be some sort of architecture. So to come back to this conversation you had with Sean Locke, yeah. who, um, who I'd love to have on this show, but uh, I received an email from his management, which I interpreted to mean, uh, I don't think I'm talking out of school here, um, I, I interpreted it to mean we're not letting him come on the show. Right, okay. <laughs> which is uh, quite an interesting uh, thing yeah, to think yeah. about. Um, to come back to that kind of... How did you feel when he said that? Well, I just remember him. He he'd been talking. I probably I probably had asked him about it, you know, and he had probably um, sensed that I was kind of tentatively probing the notion that I might be able to talk. 
But he said, you, I remember the conversation where he said, you, you've got to um, accept the fact that you will probably, there will probably be a lurch. You might, you know, your income might drop for a year or two. You know, if you, if you organise your diary well, and, and this was, again, 10 years ago when there were probably more comedy clubs, you could earn quite a decent living just doing your club 20s. And uh, you could pack three or four into a, a Friday and Saturday night. You know, you could earn a decent living. And, and you know, you go out and tour the first time. I remember uh, Lee Mack, who I was working with at that time, you know, the first time he toured, he was getting audiences in, you know, the low 20s sometimes to some of the art centres, you know, that he did. And then he, he did one appearance on Live at the Apollo, I think, and, and sold out his next tour sort of almost overnight. You know, you have to have some conviction that you've got the, the product, but you also have to have a bit of luck to... Um, sort of, you know, turn the uh, turn the tap on. Anyway, I mean, it was just a sort of. Um, it was a, sooner or later you're going to have to either you know move up or move out kind of thing because you 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 have that sense that there are new young acts coming up beneath you you know all the time. The clubs, the club scene expanded for the first sort of ten years of my life of, of my comedy life mm-hmm. between '96 and 2006. There were always more clubs coming, and I think there were there were as much there was as much new stage available as there were comedians to fill it. But when that dynamic started to shift you know when you started to feel that jonglers was in trouble and one or two other clubs had stopped doing their late show and stuff and you could just feel it tipping the other way and a part of it obviously was that um more comedians were touring and so some of the money that the public have available to go and watch live comedy was going into those uh you know venues rather than into the clubs and so you feel well i i need to be able to you know, just, I mean, that makes it sound very clinical, but as much as a sort of, uh, as much as the growth of myself as a as a creative performer, I would have been quite happy, in a way. The, the club circuit is, you know, is a great thing, and I honestly still think if you want to, you know, bang for your comedy buck, you can't do much better than a really good club night, three great comics and a compare doing yeah. their best twenties. If you haven't seen them for a while, you know, it's fantastic. You know, the constant change of direction and pace and, and tone and persona is. Um, yeah, that's a big night out, you know. You can that's make, a good you know, point. properly aching, you know, I, with laughter after that. You know? I've been I've been really focused on my own touring for the last three years. I'm just yeah. coming to the end of my third tour, and I it, it is great to be reminded of how great the club scene is. <laughs> they are, they're really good. The only sad thing is that you know a lot of good comedians now, as soon as they get good enough to deliver a really good twenty, they then start touring, thinking that mm. that's what they have to do. And in reality, you know, to go and see somebody doing their first hour or an hour and a half on tour and that's your only entertainment for the night, you know, you probably won't laugh as much as you would have done them and three others doing their best twenties, you know. That's, yes. that's just it was harsh, but it's true. You know, I'm gonna strike that from the record. I need I to sell tickets. <laughs> you might have you might get a, a more memorable insight into a certain kind of worldview or whatever, if that's what you sure. want. But then if that's what you want really is a comedy night the best thing for that anyway? There's probably, you know, novels. There are probably, you know, long reads in the Atlantic or something that'll satisfy <laughs> that. So what is it that you are offering as your as your night when you're on tour? Because yeah. your, your tour shows are... Um, the One of the things that interests me about your, your touring work is that it's it's very specific yeah. in nature. You know, your most recent, your current tour, are you still, are you still on tour at yes. the moment? Yes, genius. Yeah. yeah, genius. That's about a very specific premise. It's not about, like, my struggles within a particular thing. No. It, it's, a, it's a broader 
topic and before that I know you... it started out for, I mean genius is, is and it continues to evolve because I'm trying to evolve it and take it back to Edinburgh this August but it Smart. started out really taking yes. it back yeah yeah we'll talk about I, that in a minute <laughs> I haven't got I haven't got a brand new conceit and a new hour to take back but I think I've got enough working through it when I started with genius I was just interested genuinely in the sort of nature of human intelligence and stuff and I thought that might be an interesting topic and it gradually became more of a polemic about I guess dumbing down broadly speaking you know and about the collapse of of, um, of 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 any expectation of intelligence, you know, in in public discourse and so on. But um, what I have found is that when you do, if you're doing an hour long or an hour and a half, um, you you need to have some strong attitude. You need to be talking about something that has just started to irritate you and that you don't feel is being addressed elsewhere. You know, I think if you if you're just doing a series of like amusing anecdotes about things that happened in the car park at the supermarket or whatever. That's great for 20 minutes, but after you, you, you do have to, you get that kind of, so what's your point kind of feeling after yes. a while, you know, and I, I feel it as well, you know, whereas if I'm kind of, you know, the last one that I did leashed, which was essentially about dog ownership, but was really, you know, it was, it was, it was inspired by, um, being sort of forced, basically, by my family to get a dog. <laughs> I saw that that was at the stand. Was yeah, it? I remember. it yes, started I remember. at the stand, that's right, yeah. But it became, you know, a lens through which is just kind of attacking the unnecessary complication of life now. Owning a dog should be, in fact, a very enjoyable and straightforward procedure, and it used to be when I was growing up, and now it's become complicated. And so it was more about sort of middle-class pretension and, uh, and competitiveness and... Um, commodification of things that are, are uh, that don't need commodifying you know owning a dog is a straightforward business but but now it's become a very complicated business and and it was a, like about that really and about it was about how parenting and rearing children more broadly has become unnecessarily commodified and complicated and yes scientifically you know interfered with by experts and so on it's it's a it's aboutness the extent to which it was about those things yeah. whereabouts in the process did that arrive with that like I want to write about this and I'll do it through the medium of dog ownership yeah or were you discovering that it was about that I think it's the second I think you start talking about dog ownership and you have a few conversations with your mate and you start laughing about how what idiots we are to have allowed ourselves to get into this you know yet another (laughs) bloody stupid situation but then it becomes this kind of you know a bit of anger flares up as well and then you think oh that's what's really going on here I mean it's classic you know, therapy stuff, isn't it? Not that I've had Freudian therapy, but I've seen it in the movies, so I, <laughs> I, I'm convinced I understand it. But it is essentially somebody goes in thinking that they're angry with their boss and it turns out they're really angry with their mother or whatever. That's usually the, you know, it's like what's really going on. That's here, an know? incredible insight. That, absolutely. Yeah. I experienced that in the writing of every show. I yeah. start off roughing out, uh, this is... This is, I suppose, what I want to talk about. A lot of yeah. that stuff falls away. That's just scaffolding to get the engine started. Exactly, yeah. Um, and then I'll go, oh, I'm writing about this, but what is it really about? That's, that's yeah. a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. And a lot of the time, and with this current show as well, it, what it's about is... Uh, the, I, I mean, the first Edinburgh show that I took up that had a proper name in any kind of overarching theme at all was called Cycles. That was in 2003. And I didn't really knit the routines together to create a convincing and plausible, uh, you know, show that would justify that name. But the idea was that everything moves in cycles. It was the cyclical nature of the universe, whether it be, you know, planets revolving around the, the, the sun and, and, and seasons revolving and, and lifetimes revolving and the cyclical nature of 
the relationships and everything you go through has this kind of, you know, birth, reproduction and death kind of cycle. And I was just trying to microcosm and macrocosm that, you know, and like, like explore those ideas. And it is a little bit, uh, it was, you know, um, as you said earlier, it's quite pretentious and I don't think I really got it down, but it is something that fascinates me. And I, I like, you know, spirals in nature and, and anything that grows like that and rings of trees, they, they speak to us. They, you know, they satisfy some kind of, I don't know if it's a Jungian kind of notion of an archetype or something, but there's something in us that, that kind of responds well to things that are cyclical in nature rather than linear. I don't trust linear. I don't believe in linear. This is where my politics come from as much as anything else because a lot of people... I mean, I think I've started to understand that uh, uh, in myself only quite recently, but the big kind of divide between reactionary and progressive politics is that reactionaries understand that, you know, man is imperfectible and that everything moves in cycles, the cyclical uh, theories of history, you know, the Toynbee and uh, Spengler and what have you, whereas the progressives believe that man is advancing towards an ultimately perfect state, you know, and that we can continue to perfect things and that we can constantly do better and so there's that you know it doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't strive for that but whether you believe that that's going to be the destination i think i'm broadly across the territory toynbee and spengler i'm lost at toynbee and spengler are just a couple of theorists and uh, they wrote histories of the cycles of civilizations and how they're comparable so the rise and fall of the roman empire is a classic example that people now are looking at and going is america into its final decline has it you know the barbarians at the gates kind of thing but the idea that you know on a personal level you have that i think that's more you know where the where the stand-up comes in and you know so that you see yourself i'm now at the stage where my father was at when i was a young boy and so you just see and this is how it's changed and these and this for me is a rich seam in a way that i never felt that i mean if you had to pick one absolutely cliched topic that's just been overly explored a, a, an exhausted seam of comedy it's probably the difference between men and women right that's the endless kind of, and some, sometimes it's done as the difference between cats and dogs or cat people and dog people but it's always this kind of you know this is like this but this is like this and in america it's very much uh, traditionally it's always been race and ethnicity so you know there's a lot of that old simpsons thing like the comedian the black comedian who says you know white, white people guys drive like, like this, you know, yeah. and black people yeah so you're just comparing two types of things the whole time but for me I really find the where I'm at in life and what what life was like for my father when he was my age. I find that, you know, the generational gap, you know, and looking back hasn't, I don't feel, been as exhausted as some other things. And I'm kind of starting to feel that's my territory now. So last show was like, we've got a dog. And I, when I was a boy, we had a dog, but it's different now in these respects. And this show is about when I was a boy at the age of nine, I got a copy of the Guinness Book of Records, and now my son has a copy of the Guinness Book yes. of Records, but look how the records have changed. Look at where the focus is. Look at what things excite his imagination compared to what used to excite my imagination or what is presumed to excite the childish imagination now. And that's that feels to me like it's a, a fresher, you know, because it is. it has that slightly reactionary um assumption in it which i like because a i genuinely like it and b it goes against the grain of most comedy which does yes. definitely tend to be progressive and you the, know, the reactionary all... assumption to which you're referring there is the is what exactly the... i suppose that it's just that you know humans you know we it's almost like the idea of original sin you know it's like we're not you know we we, we are we continually fuck up it's just that yes. you know we will just it will go wrong and 
and your great you know clouds in the in, castles in the sky will will crumble and fall and okay. and these things rise and fall so it's it's like the tide you know it's just that it's a it's a vision of of the world as being like a tide whereas i suppose you know the liberal view is is more um you know tinkering the whole time and thinking that they can improve things you know whereas there's a certain kind of i'm not religious i'm not but it's a kind of catholic i think a, you know a traditional catholic kind of world view which i do find more plausible more convincing you know i think than um than the, you know, there's obviously progress in terms of science and knowledge and understanding in some senses we have a far greater understanding of genetics for instance than we did i mean you could say a hundred years ago it was understood as a mechanism, you know, but uh, but but how it might actually work, nobody had any idea, and certainly two or three hundred years ago, no idea at all. But then again, you only have to read Plato and Aristotle to see that two and a half thousand years ago, there were men who had a better grasp of how society functions and how it falls and how it fails than than most people do now. So, do you see what I mean? Yes, yes, I think so. Okay. So I'm just saying... The compare and the contrast thing between different generations and different cycles of life is a more interesting seam. And when I say seam, it's not like a, a random term. I mean, people say about the seam of comedy, but a seam of coal is created by two, you know, huge geological lumps of, of you know, squeezing yes. some organic matter and, and grinding it, you know, and that is the seam that, that between the two Con- contrasting men and women, men on one yeah. side and women on the other. Wherever where there Cats is and it's dogs, comparison yeah, between a yeah, dynamic no, that's yeah, exactly. applying pressure to itself. Okay. Yeah. So that's one that interests me now. Generational change, how things are changing. And I think it, it's enough, there's almost enough there for a lifetime, really. It's just a question of what you put under that particular lens. But that interests yes, I, me more than. I never quite believe it when... I mean, I mean, funnily enough, although I argue in favour of, you know, a certain amount of realism about sex differences between men and women, for instance, which is on Twitter, is, like, incredibly controversial. I don't know how controversial it is in real life, but, you know, people get sacked for writing memos saying that maybe guys are just more into coding than women are. I think most people in normal life probably just shrug and go, maybe they are. Yeah, probably they are. I don't know. But it's incredibly, you know, politically hot in, in certain circles. But I'm not that interested in it as a as a um, as a comedy trope. I'm, I've never been that bothered about. I think my wife is quite masculine in certain stereotypical ways, and I'm quite feminine. So maybe that's why. I don't know. She's certainly more organised than me. She's very solution orientated. If anyone comes to her with their problems, she won't just listen and nod sympathetically. She will start to suggest to them a route out, which can be really annoying. Yeah, to I was people, gonna say. You know, people hate that. I you know? really annoy my but wife by is, suggesting routes out of things. This is this is supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> why men are rubbish at being empathic listeners and why they're rubbish at being, you know, mates. And the women go, no, you don't understand. Just listen, just listen. Well, my wife is where well, I'm quite happy to just sit there and listen or at least to sort of, you know, reflect and share and, you know. And, and is this, it, it's, it feels like the recognition of that territory as being yours to win. Yeah. Is, is quite an important area of the last five years of your career. Yes, and again, it's not a thing that I would, um, I didn't, map it out at all but I can see that it has become the thing that I've done in the last three shows because the previous one to Leash which was called Friendly Fire which was just a silly um, sort of punning title um, it came from a tweet that I'd done over it went to see uh, went to see a movie called Friendly Fire it killed a couple of hours <laughs> and uh, it was just, just a silly pun and then I just thought I'd make that the title 
of this show. But it, it turned out to be about the difference in what were male role models uh, between when I was growing up and my son the growing up. So looking at footballers now, um, who my own son, uh, you know, uh, as soon as he learned that uh, John Terry had cheated with his teammate's wife, he absolutely hates John Terry now with an extraordinary moral indignation he has. With <laughs> and I don't think enough people acknowledge that, that boys have that kind of sense of, and I'm sure girls do too, have that sense of moral indignation about people when they know they've behaved badly, but they're, I don't know, it's put up as a sort of parade. And anyway, I talked about sort of old-fashioned um, boys' own heroes, and I focused in on Ernest Shackleton, you know, the polar explorer, and told a story, and it ended with this kind of five-minute tableau of Shackleton's miraculous um, escape, you know, with all his men's lives from uh, the jaws of death in, in the Antarctic in 1914, and or 1916 by the time they got back, and, um, and, and drew that contrast. And so that was probably the first time that I'd done that. You know, these are what used to pass for heroes then, and this mm. is how you achieve some kind of heroic fame now. This is how you get onto bedroom walls now. And it's just, I think that's become a thing that I just, yeah, I've sort of become aware that that's my... And it's it's something that's quite... I know it's not unique to me, but it certainly doesn't feel like it's something that's, you know, overly... It's yes. not endlessly paddled one way or another. You know, you can... You can go to a lot of um, comedy nights now and see this, you know, this. If you can go with some great material, but if somebody has already been in that in that area, you know, there's no yep. getting around it. You know, the audience went, oh, this again, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just on a side note about Shackleton. I have only just learnt the story of Shackleton literally last week because oh, right. I have been lazily using him as an example of an Antarctic explorer yeah. for a bit that I've got in a new show that I'm writing for right. Edinburgh this year. So I was like, hmm. And in fact, to my shame, I thought... I'd better learn more about him because it yeah. might be an opportunity for more gags. And then yeah, I learned, yeah. I couldn't believe the end of the story I that know. everyone, everybody lived. It's the most incredible thing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's astonishing. His, his, the, the boat trip from Elephant Island to South Georgia and then crossing South Georgia on foot with no map, never, never been surveyed, the whole interior of that island. Uh, a complete wilderness, unknown, never crossed and yeah. uh, unmapped and, and up to, I think, 12,000 feet, some of the mountain ranges. I'm sure he's thrilled to be remembered as a, a footnote in there. <laughs> a yeah, bunch yeah, of comedians yeah. well, doing jokes about other it's things. Something, yeah. <laughs> I then went on, I did him as my specialist subject on Celebrity Mastermind as oh, well. Oh, yeah. So he became a bit of a speciality for me for a while, but, you know, eventually you've got to move on. You'd I'm not that... The thing that I'm not... I, 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 I have to sort of almost remind myself of this sometimes because I find myself buying books and thinking, oh, I'm interested in that, aren't I? And, and <laughs> actually, I'm, I'm not actually as interested in the things that men were interested in 30 years ago I'm as much as I'm interested in what those things were as a, as yes. a sort of sociological conversation about yes. we used to be as men interested in this and now yes. it turns out we're less so or are we all just still interested in those things but you know I mean a lot of Clearly, a lot of people are still obsessed with the Second World War. That's still a huge publishing topic. You know, the number of books still released annually about Hitler and about the yeah. Third Reich and about, the, you know, specific battles and, and, um, and specific invasions and what have you, you know, and operations is extraordinary. I mean, yes. it's, you know, it's... And I don't, I'm not that interested in it, but I sort of tried to get interested in it in a way to try and understand what the interest was, but... I don't get it. Well, it, well is, there, <laughs> is, is that kind of uh, reflective of the, the kind of um, 
the difference between the dynamic between your on-stage persona, persona and your yeah. actual persona in that yeah. you're this territory of being a slightly fusty or well, maybe not fusty kind of no, no, pro- yeah, maybe sure professorial yeah. or maybe kind of you know you look like a sort of you've yeah. got military bearing the clipped tones prep school headmaster people have said yeah that absolutely sort of thing, you disdainful know. Yeah. you know what I mean but yes. and in a very funny way I grasp this uh, yeah, with yeah, so yeah. Minor. Yes. you absolutely should three be. battalions on the eastern flank how many will it take to surround and perform the pincer movement come on we've been through this you know <laughs> yeah. I've just thought I don't know if you've ever done this but I think it would be hilarious if you were to ask people their names and only ever mean their surname. <laughs> that's very good no I never uh, have done that yeah uh, very good but um so, so that which mm. we know isn't you. Mm. When you, um, when you, I'm more interested in the sociology or the evolutionary psychology or whatever you want to call it of of the things that people are interested in. Yes, than the, than the things that they're interested. Yes, in. Yes, understood, yes. and absolutely. But of course, then you have conversations, and I mean, I can talk to somebody like Al Murray, for instance, who you may have done on this show, who is very good on history, really, really strong on on 20th century and German history in particular. Is the complete opposite of his pub landlord persona in that respect, and he's really well versed on the war. And I have conversations with him in which he has really genuinely interesting insights into how the war was conducted or into why a certain general yes. was, was removed from a certain campaign because, you know. And I, I think, oh God, it is interesting. Those people are right because, you know, but that's because you're having a conversation about it and it becomes fascinating. And then you see the thickness of the book you need to read in order to get that one yes. interesting, you know, and you think, no. I may not. as well just have a conversation yes. with just a have, learned exactly. friend. Yes. <laughs> yeah. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So this is Simon, and as you can hear if you download the extras of this show, which are available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for people who want to support the show with a recurring monthly donation and receive not just extras, but a whole host of uh, other projects that you have access to, a workspace where you and other insiders and myself can talk about strategy, and uh, uh, we can talk about anything. We can talk about writing. There are various uh, other podcast projects where we can critique 
uh, other comedians work, newer acts when they send their work in and all sorts of stuff. And that's all bubbling away and growing and developing and developing itself and being developed by the community as we speak. Not only that, and not only all of those content, but specifically with Simon's extras, uh, we talk about, uh, we go a bit more into detail on Simon's recent uh, question time appearance. Uh, we talk about the surprise in store for anyone meeting Simon's parents. And we have a really good chat about social marketing and some of the options available to an act of Simon's seniority. People for whom a sudden pivot into social media represents a certain credibility risk, shall we say. There's some fascinating thoughts there. So go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders and you can download the extras from this show as well as extras from Sophie Willen, Anuvab Pal, Daro Brian, James Acaster, Sarah Millican and all of the other extras that have ever been available from this show. Sign up for £2 a month or, or more. You can do £3 a month. I think the options are three, five, seven pounds fifty, and 10 uh, as well as 2 um, I am currently honouring everyone who started off uh, the, the few £1 a month people from the last few years. Uh, everyone currently has access at that rate, but that's no longer available to incoming new people. But regardless of how much you pay, you get access to the same amount of content. So please take a look at that, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. It can also be accessed via cashforgoldsmith.com. And that is a real true thing, thanks to listener Laura Serbin, who came up with that very amusing web address. I'd like to thank everyone at Angel Comedy at the Bill Murray Pub. Um, and uh, thank you very much for the recording space for this show and many like it. There's a lot more coming up then. I'm always worried that I'll forget to thank people. But you, as if you're a comedian or if you're an audience member, you can take huge advantage of everything that's going on at the Bill Murray Pub. It's in Angel and uh, it is part of it's the it's the property leased by Angel Comedy. Four people got together, four comics got together and bought the lease on a pub for God knows how long, 20 years or so, to try and make it a going concern, which has shows every night, sometimes numerous shows every night, and also during the day is a resource for comedians. And uh, Barry Ferns, who is one of the, the people associated with it, he in particular has such a sort of, such an excitement and a vision for what is possible with, uh, with a, a community and an organisation like that. He's the sort of person that if you've got a crazy idea for a comedy-related project, definitely talk to Barry and the team at Angel Comedy, based at the Bill Murray Pub, because they are really excited about being excited about things. They're really excited about projects and developing things. So I would highly recommend you seek them out if you have a night that you want to run, an experiment that you want to try, some sort of benevolent mental health project for comedians, space you need during the day to record things in, all sorts of things like that. Go and check out. And let's not forget, brilliant shows every night, sometimes for free and often for very little money. That's enough of a shout out for them, I think, but they've been very good to me recently. So I think they deserve every word of that. Now, let's get back to Simon Evans. My career in comedy really started as a heckler. You know, I used to like sitting in comedy clubs and, <laughs> and just, you know, just, but not like bollocks, get off, you know, like sl slice, you know, if I didn't, if somebody's routine seemed to me as was quite common, I wouldn't do it unnecessarily <laughs> and just, you know, I, but I, on two or three occasions. Where is this? Where, whereabouts? Which club is this? Well, the first one I remember was, I'll tell you this story. This was at the comedy store when it was still on Leicester Square where the 99 Club okay. took up and I think has moved on from now. Yes. But anyway, it was in a basement. It was quite a small um, club by the standards of the modern comedy store. Arthur Smith was comparing 
And he did a couple of jokes before he brought on the first act, um, uh, of course. And one of them was about the fire uh, regulations. And there was something about there's a fire extinguisher at the back. If there are any students in, uh, you know, I you know, wanted to play a prank, which, funnily enough, was the specific crime committed by my friends. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> nicking a fire extinguisher. But uh, yeah, uh, anyway, if there's a fire extinguisher at the back. If there's any students in, ha, ha, ha. And then... During the course of his uh, opening um, sort of 10 minutes or whatever, he told a joke about a, a peanut. I can't remember what the joke was, but the... But oh, the, entered a marathon the other day. Chocolate and peanuts all over me, knob. No? It wasn't, <laughs> that is, yeah, yeah, it wasn't that one, although that is one of his, isn't it? But I can't remember what it was, but I think it was about a woman choking on a peanut or something okay. like that, but I can't remember why. Anyway, so it had a peanut in it. Brings on the first act, interval, whatever. Second uh, section uh, brings on a couple of open spots. And one of them... Was, he was dying on his ass, and you I realised an open spot, oh, no. Simon. This is like I finding out you used to be a critic. But, they, but you know, I was young, and I, I but I had no. I mean, I wasn't in the industry or anything at this point. But he wasn't just dying; he was really annoying. He was mm. he was quite kind of arrogant. He seemed to have no uh, humility or recognition that. He oh, was, I've seen you know, open spots. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, I had no sympathy for him. The audience were like, "Oh God, make this end." And um, he did. He made exactly the same joke about the fire extinguisher uh, at the back of the room that Arthur had earlier. So not only was he not funny, but he hadn't bothered to show up at, in time to watch the, for, you know, which I, even then I instinctively I understood was not on. And so the room just went silent as he did this fire extinguisher joke. And I shouted out, do the peanut joke. <laughs> <laughs> and I got easily the biggest laugh of the oh, set. God. You know, I think there was a smashing of applause. And uh, and he, of course, didn't have any idea what I was talking about because yes. he hadn't bothered to show up early enough to oh see. Oh, my God. So it was a double whammy from his point of view. It wasn't merely heckled. He was like a complete ninja attack. I he mean, the no cherry idea. on the top of his anecdote mm. is going to be if you now tell us that he grew up to become a famous television yeah, no, comedian. I don't, I don't think he was ever seen again. But oh, anyway, dear, I he maybe, maybe as a frustrated comic is listening to this. Yeah, Do you have anything to say to him? I did you a favour. <laughs> And I hope you learned your lesson. <laughs> I, I always um, regarded it as important if you were doing an open spot to be there from the start. I don't 100%. know. Nine times out of ten, you don't hear anything significant, but but you get a sense of what's going on. Absolutely in the room, right. You know, absolutely right. But this, as a as an origin story, as yeah. a superhero origin story, which I'm fond of <laughs> attributing the former heckler. I mean, yeah. what like. You got from the safest place possible, mm. you were able to experience the so enormous went, rush yeah. of an audience exactly. laughing at your thing. I mean, what, what an origin. How long, how, how much time, how many days were there between that and you signing up? No, for quite moment? a long time. I think probably another five years passed before I started doing comedy. And I actually started five years doing of heckling? it through improv, uh, which I did for a couple of years before I did stand-up as well. But I did always remember it. I remember that rush and I remember that feeling of wanting to get back to it. But I mean, anyone does it in a pub, don't they, with the... Um, but I suppose the distinction I'm making in terms of social gatherings, let's say there's uh, five or six mates in a pub having a beer, some of them will hold court, have a beer, and everyone is, uh, is listening to them and they're telling a story about, you know, what happened at the match or whatever that's hilarious. I was never that guy. I could not hold court. I could never hold focus. I could never string like an anecdote together and uh, make everyone buy into my kind of characterization of what was going on. But what I could do if somebody was being a bit boring with their anecdote was I would be the one to cut the tension. I could be the one who would just put in the single stroke, you know, the single sword 
and uh, and and slice it down and that would be the end of it and it would get a big laugh and it was you know it was always undercutting pretension it was always undercutting um pomposity or whatever that i could do that but i could but as soon as i tried to then take okay i've sliced this guy down i now climb onto you know and i could never hold it at all nobody would even have to like under you know slice me (laughs) so that's quite an odd i don't know if that's a commentary but that's quite an odd um thing to then think right i will now do 20 minutes of that because you know who are you going to be assassinating so you have to sort of create a um you know a dynamic where you're where you are you know cutting yourself down you know so there's this kind of you have to do this kind of i am not quite aware of the degree to which i am a pompous buffoon myself you know in yes. order that i can then reveal that to be the case with you know asides or whatever what was the, what was the first joke where you felt the first joke you you'd written where you felt i have achieved exactly what you're talking about there that yeah. thing of, of establishing who you are for the audience by undercutting your own pompous well there was one i, I mean it's a bit obvious when we won the construction of it really but there was one quite early on where i said um i was going through some paperwork the other day and i found uh, a letter from an old girlfriend said, Dear Simon, I'm leaving you, you anally retentive asshole." And to me, that was funny already because uh, the fact that somebody keeps these, these, that sort of letter means they're <laughs> anally retentive. But, but the audience never laughed at that point. They, I don't know how many people even... I mean, anally retentive is one of those... It was quite a common term 20 years ago. And thinking about it, I don't think you hear it that much now. Well, it's I think people one of those hang on. Sort of, it's one on. of those vaguely sort of Freudian terms. Anyway, anally retentive arsehole. And then I, so I developed it a bit further to kind of hammer home the point. It was like, and I, I had to laugh because for a start, she'd failed to hyphenate anally retentive. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I had to date it for her myself. Uh, filed it under R for rejection, <laughs> correspondence files, brackets, romance. And it would just all went down that, sure. you know, it'd just be elaborated it until they kind of go, oh, that's what anally retentive means. Yes. I think a lot of people, um, you know, needed that little bit of nudging. But it was quite, it was probably the first fully, I don't know, what, what do you call that? Like, is that dramatic irony or something? That kind of, you know, where you're apparently not aware of... The, that's it what and, an idiot you're making you're, and, you're and also you're be, simultaneously you know? you're satisfied in your own idiocy yes exactly. like you're not undercutting yourself in a no, sort no. of a I'm an idiot I'm you're quite blissfully unaware that you're yes, yes yeah exactly you know and then this as I say brazen disregard for other people's sort of sensibilities or feelings or you know so that goes into that whole Geordie thing where you know it's not it's not about um criticizing them or, or disparaging them it's more about being adopting the tone of a sort of uh, genial Victorian anthropologist, you know, who's going, remarkable people, they, they feel no need, they don't feel the cold at all, you know, and all that sort of thing. It's that kind of approach rather than a um, anything more aggressive towards them, you know, and then you can have all of you can you can have your cake and eat it in that respect. You know? Yes. Yes. I'm, uh, I'm so delighted by that, I've forgotten to rack up another question. <laughs> <laughs> That is that that is genuinely fascinating to come to to have your the crucible in which you were kind of forged initially as a comic yeah. to be sniping. Yeah, like I mean that's I see myself as a sniper, and I still think of that. And you know, if if I'm in a room with other comedians, I'm, I'm very rarely like the funny one again holding court, or whatever. I'm much funnier if I'm in a room with three or four other people who are not particularly funny. You know, that's where I find, okay, I will step up. If I'm in a room with three or five other comedians, I won't try to be funny at all. I, yes. won't, I won't even chuck stuff in there. Sure. You know? I don't know, maybe it's not very generous of me, but I'm much more likely to go, they'll, somebody will crap a joke and everyone will laugh, and I'm more likely to be the one going, 
Yeah, I don't know it's quite fair, though, is it? Because yeah. Because you know what I mean? And I can't say, it's just a joke. I mean, you don't understand. Do and, and does that then, um, is that reflected in your, in, in your not, uh, what's the opposite of a predisposition um, for panel games? You're yeah. saying you, you haven't ever felt that you've been as good on a panel game as yeah, you are yeah. on your own. Yeah. Because some comics love to be to be standing around in a circle slamming each other. Yeah, yeah. And some yeah. comics, that, that isn't... I mean, I think partly it's, it, you know, it helps to have a bit of practice, doesn't it, with panel games, to, set, to play the same one two or three times. And I, I'm not saying it wouldn't work. I, I, I think for some reason I, I never did quite get them. Mock the Week was a long story, and that was obviously one that broke for a lot of people. I was on the run-throughs for that a couple mm-hmm. of times, and it didn't quite work for me there. And so I think they felt they tried me out and it hadn't worked. Do you know what I mean? Okay. It was kind of, I was really excited about it initially. It was, oh my God, I'm in at the ground floor. But in fact, yes. the whole game, the setup, how it works and everything, I hadn't quite grasped it. I hadn't seen how it would go. You know. Anyway, that's by the by. But it, it, it is a little bit tricky if you are, yes, if you are more of a sniper, you know, um, and you're not allowed to develop a persona, you know, in the space of 30 seconds, which allows the audience to understand the ironic sort of detachment about what yes. you're doing. Yeah. Yes, and it's almost now that you are, now that there is a, a marketing angle that you can employ mm. of being, if not the Brexit comedian, then at yeah. least a non-wishy-washy liberal comedian. Yeah, right. that's, that's an angle, it's marketable. Yeah. But also that doesn't, that following that line marketing-wise doesn't allow for the sort of richness of your actual opinion. Like you're not yeah. going, you're not Jeff Norcott. You're not playing no. the note of I'm the only conservative yeah, yeah, comedian right. in the country. Yes, you know, and that would kind of limit the scope, perhaps, of what you do. Yes, but also you might find yourself getting booked for those kind of gigs because yeah, yeah, it's I true. mean, are you turning Absolutely. down lots of corporates from uh, <laughs> the <Yeah>. EDL? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure the EDL has the sort of money I'd like. <laughs> Judging by the uniforms, I think. No, it's interesting that I have watched Jeff. It's, it has been interesting watching. And Jeff I don't. I, obviously, I don't mean to knock Jeff at no, all. No, no, I, no, I think he's, he's an excellent comic, but he has got a very different approach to the whole issue than I have. Which is, you know, I mean, I think he gets away with quite a lot of. Yeah, he, he can sort of. He can knock Corbyn, of course. Almost anyone can, but he has that sort of council estate uh, Tory. You know, he is like uh, what was it called? Uh, uh, is it? Not Braintree. What was the place in Essex where the, the, all the the, the the man, you know, like Mondeo man was supposed to come from? Okay. And he sort of created Thatcher's, you know. Um, so it's that it's a very it is very different to my sort of patrician. Ah, you fools! You don't quite you know you have not seen have you have it? You know, Note to self: refer just, to Simon as the patrician yes, in the show right. notes. <laughs> but that is, I mean, that is you know, in terms of the persona, but also the interest. It is that kind of uh, wanting to float above it, like a sort of Ralph Richardson sort of character, you know, just in Time Bandits, you know, that sort of uh, you know, a bit of local difficulty sort of thing, you know. Yes. That, that's always amused me. That kind of... I mean, I find those people, you know, and they're a dying breed, obviously probably a dead breed, but the, um, you know, they cropped up in British films, Jack Hawkins sort of characters, you know, a regimental tie, but, mm-hmm. but not not bloodthirsty and, and not... not um, uh, you know, not hugely ambitious, not, uh, you know, uh, every bit as much uh, sympathy for the common man, the working man, as they as they had for the for the uh, aristocracy or whatever that not not a, not a kind of um, um, not not a sort of spiteful mean, you know, against greed, against commercialism. You know, there's a, a TV drama series I'm watching at the moment, which is, um, I think it came out a few years ago. Benedict Cumberbatch plays a, um, a, an aristocrat on the, in the dawn of the First World War who is disappointed that 
um, you know, uh, the way the country is going just generally and the drift. Um, but he sees the war. It was they're based on Ford Maddox Ford books, which I haven't read, but which are you know considered to be proper literature. And the thing was scripted by Tom Stoppard, so it's a proper mm-hmm. kind of piece of work. But it's similar to sort of themes to Downton Abbey, I suppose, the sort of end of the Edwardian summer and the, the you know the just the, the the collapse of that apparently idyllic setup. But it's his sense that conservatism means duty, you know, duty to those below as well as to those above, you know, a sense of stewardship, a sense of of um, responsibility for maintenance of, uh, of, a, of a, a bequest, you know, which is the country. And, and as he says, the, the agrarian is against the industrial, which was the great strife, you know, in the, in the fight for the soul for America as well, which has now been conclusively lost. And... Um, <laughs> And that's it's that's kind of you know not necessarily that I have that, but that's mm-hmm. that's the kind of person who I feel I want to sort of speak on behalf of, you know, rather than Mondeo man, you know, yes, which is where yes. I think Jeff's coming from, which is equally valid and funny and has loads of great jokes of as well, but that's quite a different thing. That's you interesting. Know? Your description there of conservatism, mm. or that that's the the most attractive portrait of the word conservatism yeah, I've ever heard but there's why there is no as Peter Hitchens you know correctly says there is no conservative party anymore now there is essentially there are two approaches to the same mercantilist you know race to the bottom it's uh, I mean Roger Scruton would probably be the, the you know the the most um, uh, highest esteemed thinker in these terms now but Hitchens is a slightly more populist voice for it, but, but still characterises it pretty well. You know, you probably have to embrace Anglicanism at, at the very least as well, which I don't. I'm not, you know, I'm not... I'm, I find it fascinating and, 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 and sad and melancholy, but it's, you know, it's mm. gone. But, um, but that's where the voice comes from, I think. Are you... I seem to remember you being careful in the past never to explicitly uh, confirm your political mm. leanings. yeah. Is that still something that you... I have no real political leanings. I mean, I've never felt... I don't think in my adult lifetime I've ever voted with conviction for anyone. I have voted, but never with conviction, never with confidence, never with hope in my heart that this party would win and that would lose. I think, funnily enough, probably of all the leaders I've known in my lifetime, John Major was the closest to somebody who I felt really was a, a good man and doing his best to do the right thing for the country. I certainly didn't feel the enthusiasm everybody else did for Tony Blair when he arrived, and I feel I've been vindicated in that view. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that. I think Every John cloud. Major, and, and secondly, I would think Gordon Brown. Those have probably been the, the two leaders. Again, both yes. probably the two who were most disparaged and, and experienced the most contempt generally from the press and... And, from and, and what is it you saw in those two, obviously, leaders from two different parties? Is yeah. it sort of like ignoring the kind of partisan? Is it a, a yes. sense of decency? Well, it was the fact that they did ignore the partisan to some extent. You know, they mm. both had a view of Britain. And of course, I'm, I'm not deluded. Gordon Brown was quite uh, sincerely socialist in his outlook. And, and if he'd had a free reign, he would, he would I think, probably have have changed the uh, economic profile of Britain quite a bit, you know, if he hadn't <laughs> encountered the biggest... Um, you know, financial catastrophe of the mm. post-war era almost as soon as he sort of, you know, got his, his uh, legs under the desk. But um, I think they, 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 they were broadly um, quite pragmatic, phlegmatic and, and decent. Yeah, just that really. 
and, and we're operating from certain principles. One has to have certain principles, but I don't think that they were... There was nothing messianic about them, you know. In terms of the audience who come to see you when yeah. you're touring and the audience that you are cultivating, yeah, it seemed to me like the decision to go on Question Time was... Kind of was that sort of part of? I think what a, I was enjoying was I, I, the, 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 the um, sequence of events. If, you, if, if just to explain, it was not. I mean, it wasn't. I wasn't pressing for that. But I was on the news quiz uh, at one evening, and everybody, as usual, was just slamming into Trump. Oh, Trump is a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Trump is the worst thing to ever happen. Britain, Trump will lead us into war. And then Miles came to me, and I, I just felt like sort of, I, I was a slight devilment, really. But I just said that. <laughs> You know, whilst he is unquestionably, you know, uh, uh, on aesthetic grounds, you know, uh, there's something quite unpleasantly vulgar about him. The reality is the American economy has never been stronger, despite the likes of Paul Krugman saying that America would be bankrupt within 12 months of of a Trump administration. It has, in fact, it has grown in all important metrics. The stock market has reached record highs on a weekly basis. Because of the confidence that Trump brings to it. There's less people in him. There's less unemployment. There's more... Uh, less black and Latino unemployment, you know, for people who say that he is, you know, uh, implicitly racist in his policies. Uh, you know, there have been all kinds of positive outcomes. Syria is in a better place than it was throughout most of Obama's reign. And um, we have a situation now in Korea where, uh, you know, they had just opened um, lines. Of course, that's faltering. Of course it will. But, um, you know, the idea that he has brought this catastrophe upon the world, in reality, what he's brought is a hideous mess for anyone who bothers to read on a daily basis about Washington, you know, mm. the, the wasp's nest of Washington, which, to be honest, if it's not my business, I, you know, I've just, I mean, this endless Russia probe bollocks has just been going on forever and nobody's getting anywhere with it. It's, it's just nonsense as far as I can see. So anyway, I said this, objectively speaking, he's probably the most successful president of my lifetime. And within, <laughs> within a year of taking office, you know, George W. Bush had plunged the world into war, you know. Within yep. a year of, of, of coming into office, Obama had trebled the national, you know, deficit. I mean, there are all these, you know, he hasn't actually done anything bad. I'm not saying it's his fault or it's not his fault. I'm just saying the first year has been fairly quiet, except for the endless, you know, snarking. Anyway, from, off the back of that, I was invited to appear on a thing called The Big Questions, which is... Uh, um, Nikki Campbell's uh, Sunday yes. morning debate programme. And uh, they were talking about Trump's first year, and so I went on that, and I enjoyed it. And it, there was quite a lot of cut and thrust there, and you talk over each other and you row. It's 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. You've had to have lots of coffee to wake up, and mm-hmm. then you've overdone it, of course. So everyone's a bit kind of... <laughs> you know. And, um, and I really enjoyed that. And they also make question time. So they rang me up and went, oh, we thought you were great. Would okay. you like to come on question okay. time? So then, of course, there's that kind of, do I? Is it just an ego thing? Will it actually help my career? It's almost certainly more likely to do more damage than good. There almost certainly will have been somebody, for instance, a corporate booker, who saw me on question time and just went, oh, it's a bit controversial. Some of our mm-hmm. uh, members might not like his line on Brexit mm-hmm. or indeed, you know, on... Um, on Windrush or something, you know, and you just don't know what... You, you try and be reasonable, but there will always be people who go, well, I don't think that's right. And then, of course, you know, much better to keep stum, you know, really, in terms of your career. But at the same time, you just sort of think, I'd quite like to have a go at that, you know. Yeah. I'm sure 12-year-old well, Simon sitting in front of the telly watching Robin Day would have thought, wow, one day I could actually be out there. You yes. Know, let's go, oh, God, yes. let's just do it. But it is, you know, it is the temptation of the ego more than anything else. But it's, it's not at all strategic. The reality is 
you shouldn't do these things really unless you really have something you want to say. My wife works in PR. She knows that. She's always saying to me, think to yourself, what is it you're trying to achieve? Will this help me achieve it? The answer is nine times out of ten, no, it won't. You know, I'm just too easily distracted and... You well, know, it's interesting that you say this, that initial Trump kind of outburst of yours on the Now Show was, yeah. um, was oh, the news quiz, sorry, mm. was, um, was in a spirit of devilment. Yeah. And then you, you clearly warmed to the topic. Like, in, it, yeah. in your description there, you kind of go, hmm, this is de- devilment. And then you give like yeah. eight good, well-researched but it's reasons. Devilment. Very easy for me to listen to that and think, well, that's not devilment. That's just yeah. actually what you think. It's, it's, it's only devilment to say that he's the greatest president of our lifetime. I understand. I think okay. in reality, what it's illustrated is that, you know, the world is a very, very complex Slow moving, sure. mech- you know, it's it's an oil tanker, isn't it? You know, and no, whoever's the, the captain of an oil tanker, it, it, it can take decades before the effects of their actions, you know, become apparent. You know, a slight deviation in course, you know. Sure, but it was just this kind of pretense that the world is in flames because of Trump. Trump is an is a, a symptom of the fact that the world is in flames and has been for some time. That's Absolutely, big, well, know. that I, I totally agree with that. I think yeah. that is a very um, reasonable yeah. view which is kind of like not equivocation but is like let's all think about this it's all actually more complex than a yeah, soundbite yeah. yeah and yet i wonder if in saying that in bothering to say that and for the, the development element of it yeah you then become one of the very few people who has an apparently yes. trump voice you then benefit from that you yeah, then yeah. attract an audience who maybe think oh well this is where this guy's coming that's from that's the thing who you, then you you can do that disappoint of perhaps. course you can well exactly and there is that danger because you can go full you know andrew lawrence or whatever and just go i am the non-pc comedian and if you've if you're tired of pc come and see me because i will crack jokes about islam every bit with as, as much as i will about christianity or, or anybody else you know not not that i'm a a bigot, but just that I am not going to tiptoe around subjects that other comedians deem to be untouchable. And, and that isn't, you know, who I want to be, you know. So in that respect, unless you're going to capitalise on it, it probably doesn't help to be this guy who's kind of, as, as you say, if you can chuck a brick through the window, but un- unless you're going to then reach through that window and, you know, open the door <laughs> and enter the premises, what have you really achieved? You know, not very much necessarily. <laughs> But it is, yeah, it's just that wanting constantly to destabilise things. I think as much as anything else, it's almost wanting to break the skin on the can of, on the top of the paint, do you know what I mean? And not just sort of see that this is settled. Just go, well, no, it's not settled. I don't know that I do accept mm. that Trump is a disaster. And, and by saying, of course, he's the greatest president of our lifetime, yes. I've, you know, I've, I've lit fireworks instead of just, but, you know... The extent to which you then double down on that and try and prove that your your foolish assertion, <laughs> you know, bears, bears weight is... Uh, that's tactics, isn't it? But, um, you know, you've at least stirred trouble, you know, and I think that is... It is a lot of it is just, yeah, it's just that. It's just like wanting to see the wasp's nest and just go, you know. But I, I Poke just... Poke it with your field marshal's exactly, baton. Yes. <laughs> the endless self-satisfied, you know, and, and self... I don't know exactly how to how to put this, but the you know the, the liberal consensus, which just grows ever and ever more sure and, and convinced of its of itself, and everyone does it on both sides. There's no there's no two in, in terms of the the material that I read and see anyway. You know, and on Twitter, if you spend much time on Twitter, you become convinced that ninety nine percent of the tweets are are like generated by computers. Now they just repeat the same on both sides. They just repeat the same observations. And everyone is accused of not being capable of critical thinking. And everyone is accused of being low IQ. And everyone is accused of being a bot, which is what that yes. means, you know. Just, yes. 
And you just think, this is just insane, you know, but... It's this weird kind of, it's almost, it recalls kind of a Prince Charles's fear about grey nanobot yeah, suit, yeah. doesn't it? Whereby yeah, yeah. the discourse itself just yes. becomes auto-generated, what can you trust? And even if even were it not for actual bots, yeah. the fact of the same, you're a straw man, no, you're a straw yeah, Pretty yeah. much as soon as anyone employs Absolutely. one of the tactics of naming the type yes, of argument yes. someone else is doing, yes, I turn exactly. the computer off and Every, I walk away. Because everyone point very anymore? quickly goes to that point of kind of going, oh, liberal tears or, you know, white sure. man's tears. You know, I, we register that you're upset about this, but your facts don't care about your feelings. That comes in from both sides. You know? Yes, exactly. You're, you're exactly. afraid of science. You're afraid of facts. These are just, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, both uh, sides do Sorry that. that this has hurt you so much. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, God, where is that going? Where do you see any of that going? Well, I don't know. I am obviously in favour of free speech, but then when you see how most people use it, you think there's not that, you know, but it's, it's the, the trouble with it is, just on a personal level, for me, it is quite addictive because it is an easy way to avoid getting on with the work you're supposed to be doing which tends to be quite you know it's grindingly difficult by comparison you know trying to create stand-up it, it, I mean it's it's very good stand-up is very pithy isn't it it's very it's reduced it's it's, it's like granite it should, ideally it should be like diamonds you know whereas on Twitter you can just keep you know you're just skimming stones aren't you and it's um and it's, it's rewarding, somebody comes back at you, you know, you have a chat, and it's a very addictive kind of form of discourse that feels like you're thinking about things and creating material, but you're not, you're not, you come <laughs> away with nothing that you can use. You know? Yes. Well, let's talk about the grinding process, the yeah. granite. Okay. Uh, let's talk about that. I mean, go on. <laughs> like, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The type, the type of... I, I often use you as an example of a particular type of comedy whereby your lines are diamond hard yeah. and although they're not necessarily lines you're not a one-liner comic you're not and an, you're not a rambling anecdotalist you know you're no. if you if you're telling a story it's because there is a diamond hard punchline at the end of it and probably several throughout it as well i hope how so do, how do you, how can you teach other people to do that i think uh, it, it's tricky because i think i do think my club set used to be you know trimmed of of fat successfully it took years you know it was it was doing it live and just noticing when a line which didn't get a laugh and didn't seem to contribute to the tension in the build-up or anything could just be removed and you understood that and then the extra lines the sort of throwaways or the toppers or whatever would occur to you whilst you were on stage you know that is the best place to write there's no doubt about that at all in my mind most of the good stuff occurs to you so you have to have enough to get up on stage with and then and then you're just constantly you know, I, th I think of it sometimes as being like that thing where you fling pizza bases into the air, you know, and as they, they spin and they just open out a little bit and that's how you you have to keep throwing it up, you know, and, and just work it, work it, work it on stage. Very hard to write all that from scratch, you know, at a word processor. I mean, the initial writing is usually, I think, done with... Um, I've got a couple of ideas I've either... Um, you know, sometimes try and uh, introduce them into conversation in the pub without people realising that's what, I do, <laughs> yep, that's what fair, I'm doing. Fair. But sometimes <laughs> I just get a... Uh, I have a couple of sort of writing partners who um, I pay them to come over, but they will, I will try and make it as informal as possible. I don't like those kind of, right, we're going to write some jokes kind mm -hmm. of sessions. It's just like, can I um, ask you to you know come for a walk with me and we'll just uh, talk this through this mm -hmm. stuff, you know? 
Almost to, to try and, do you say to, to pay those people? Like on a I, I do basis? pay them because I think it's, um, well, sometimes they, they do, you know, contribute lines that I use, you know, mm. entirely. And one or two of them are, are comedians themselves. But I, generally speaking, I try and avoid using comedians if I can, because I just want there to be sort of funny conversation, you know. Somehow yeah. you've got to suspend disbelief that you're not doing this for any reason other than that it's amusing yes. you, you know. That's really interesting. That is something I've considered trying to do. There are certain friends I have with whom I seem to always be funny. Yeah. There's just something that's... I, I am funnier. Yeah. And, and I suppose... If I was paying them, then I'd feel less guilty about whipping my phone out and going, I'm terribly sorry, yeah, I am yeah. going to write that down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's a tricky one, though, because, I mean, you know, it doesn't exactly ruin the friendship, but it can, it can put them slightly on their guard or they suddenly feel like, am I delivering? You know, it's a weird... Yeah. It's, it's very you, Are there any that. ways to get round that? It is, I can see how that must be No, difficult. I mean, you can either... It depends whether they're earning a good living anyway and whether they just don't mind, you know. So anyone who's who's got a good career on the go, you know, I will sort of say, uh, you know, can we just go out and have a beer? And, I, I can, you know, and, they, uh, and they'll go, yeah, oh, this is a, it's a good idea. I'll tell you what I think about that, you know. Sure. And they go, oh, that's very good. That is interesting, you know. But I think finally, when it you know when it when it has to be honed down to finding the exact right expression, the, the exact right word for it, you know, that has to happen on stage. Really, I think you have to say things a few times, and I'm, it it happens fairly quickly. You know, I mean, from the the very first preview I did for the current show, Genius, was an absolute disaster. I mean, it was just you know it was awkward. Uh, there were long silences, you know, uh, um, bits, routines would end without the audience having really connected with it at any point. And what kind of... A, and by what, 20, 20 sort of previews, I guess, or something like that, by the time it got onto stage, you know, it was good. And then by the end of the Edinburgh run, it was very good, you know. And that, that first preview, how many people are in the audience for that? What, what kind of environment are you doing? 30, that was in a... It was an upstairs room in a pub in Kingston, I think. OK. And, and, and had you written... Sort of a draft of the show, I'd or did bullet, you have bullet points? But I, okay. I tried to kind of, you know, yeah, try to extrapolate them. The, the routines weren't word for word in my head by any means. So, that's so you had you had bullet points, and you're walking yeah. on thinking, I've got something to say about Alan Turing, yeah. for example. And yeah. here's so, did you have them? So, if we take that Turing example, the premise there, the very funny premise, yeah. is that. He um, he was punished for his sexuality, whereas yeah. these days he'd be punished for his intelligence. For, yeah, yeah, people would would roll their eyes a little bit. Yes, the, yes. Yeah, endless fucking hell. maths again. Alan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so how much? Right, let's so shove it down our throats. The bullet point would be Turing, and then that sent that kind of foundational premise. Yeah. That's the funny thing I've got to say about this. And yeah. then you just talk around it and try and say that bit. And last. then you hear yourself saying, and if you if you nail a sort of formal words right, you sort of know it. Even though they haven't laughed this time, you know that next time you'll be able to deliver that with the confidence that it will work, you know. But I find, I mean, I do think finding just the right word is is the key. Um, it's, you know, I think about um, Stephen Fry's book, I think it was The Hippopotamus, where's the one about it, there's a poet um, who's, who's in it. It's a novel, I can't remember very much about the plot, but I remember at one point, there's this sort of old poetry don, you know, at Oxford or something, and um, he says, people are always saying to me, oh, I had a marvellous idea for a poem... Uh, the other day and I always say well, that's a shame isn't it because poems aren't made of ideas they're made of words mm. and I think that's really insightful you know it's it, obviously you know if there are no uh, but words carry you know ideas with them but the the specifics of the word this is why I find it very difficult to do my comedy anyway I don't think travels particularly well it, it, it plays well to expats um, who are actually quite nostalgic for, for, for Englishness, but it doesn't really play well to American audiences so well or because, the you know, the 
the you know the, the word comes freighted with all sorts of little associations you yes. know and the specific or I mean and I think it's not like this is not to say that it's verbose at all in fact the opposite I think some of the great writers were um, uh, now their names have, uh, have just suddenly gone uh, the Steptoe guys what were they called guys. they're all double acts in those isn't it yeah, Gal- yeah. Goldman Simpson and uh, that's him yeah, yeah. Goldman Simpson so they're writing very very Anglo-Saxon very monosyllabic but just brilliantly perfectly shows that sometimes the un- understatement of it, there's a lovely line about uh, in Hancock, um, I used to think my mum's cooking was bad, but at least her gravy used to move about a bit. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's a bit, uh, you know, a lot of comedians would be tempted to say at least her, her gravy was vaguely mobile or was, you know, yes. was some, but it move about a bit, it's got that sort of... I don't know. It's like a. It, it's so native. You know what I mean? It's yes. like it's like there's yes. army humor or market trader or something. You know, it has. There's so little, but and that's it. Often it's the more well, the highfalutin stuff sets up the joke, but actually it's that word. Yes. You know, it's that simple Anglo. Alan Corran was a genius at that, and he was one of my sort of earliest. Um, I don't say influences, but anyway, I loved his stuff. The columns he wrote for Punch and the Times and stuff. He never did stand-up, of course, but he was on the News Quiz and he was brilliant at that as well. And he had that great thing of having a huge vocabulary, but the laugh would be delivered with the with the shortest, most Anglo-Saxon term. You know, that was that was where it came back to ground. Yes, that's and that and that because your stuff in particular is so kind of flavoured with those kind of word choices. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, I suppose the fact that it is quite, there is a sort of middle class thing to it that people might just then start to associate with a degree of um, pretension, you know, a bit of fish knives kind of, you know, and doilies, a bit of that sort of middle class, you know, (laughs) seeking for status. So, uh, I mean, again, that's where I'm interested in the... um, in the generational divide as well, that cycle thing, you know, of what was what were things like 40 years ago when I was the age my son is now. And that's usually best delivered by going back to some less, you know, some less trendy language, some less uh, current sort of yeah. flavoured forms, you know. Are you successful? Yes, but... I think if, if if I'd been shown, you know, my career twenty years ago, this is what you'll get to. I'd have to say yes, but you never, it, you never feel feel it. You never let your shoulders, you know, you never quite enjoy it, do you? It's ridiculous. I've had some years where I've earned lots of money, um, but it always seems to be that you just spend the following year catching up with the tax bill. <laughs> you know, you never, you never quite feel that you're safe from exposure as a fraud i think that's the thing isn't it you just you just don't know and you you just think it it could all it could all be smoke and mirrors and so it's not like having a successful business you know with a fleet of cars or with a with a lease on a you know it's so ephemeral it could all just vanish so suddenly and so Objectively, I have to think I, this is this has been a successful career so far, but it, it doesn't feel like it's finished yet, and so it could all retroactively disappear. Do you have any plans for retirement ever? No, no, I have none. Great, great <laughs> answer. <laughs> Me neither, Jesus. Yes. What's funny about you? Um, a certain sort of brittle, old-fashioned... 
out of touchness you know with the modern world a, a sort of cross grain irreconcilability with uh, with with the uh, with the uh, yeah with with popular trends <laughs> who do you feel you are secretly like what other comedian I'm more like Stuart Lee than um, than I'm comfortable with. Stuart is obviously uh, you know a great comedian and, and widely admired, but uh, he's very left and he's very deconstructionist and he's very sort of into you know uh, obscure indie bands and and you know weird abstract jazz and so on. And people wouldn't think that. But in terms of how I construct material, not so much his more recent stuff where he really does play endlessly with the audience, his patience. I don't do that so much, but his earlier stuff. When he was more of a club comic, and in uh, yeah, I've I've adopted, I've, I have absorbed quite a lot of his craft. I do sometimes realise after I've been doing a routine for a while, ah, this is a bit like Stuart's routine about X, you know. So I've noticed that I've absorbed more of him than than you might think. What do you think most holds you back? Uh, indecision and uh, procrastination, I would think. He answered immediately and deftly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is the bit that you are most proud of? Um, God, that is a good question. That is a good question. I did, I mean, in the early days, it was definitely the Georgie bit, which was huge. And I was, I was proud of how it had flourished like a coral reef, but it was, it was kind of cumbersome and ridiculous. Um, there were a couple of moments in the, uh, in the Welsh routine, which zigzagged back and forth quite pleasingly. I always think that's, I mean, Woody Allen's moose routine, which is, you know, held up often as the, you know, the, um, the, the kind of perfect in terms of verbal dexterity, it has that kind of turns on a sixpence thing. Every third word takes you in a new direction and surprises you. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. But I think it might be the Shackleton bit, actually, just because it was so sort of unpromising, really. And yet I used to get the audience, I managed to get the audience to see what it was that I found so kind of funny about, so, yeah, so funny about about the, the, the changes in, in you know, in, in our in our standards of what to look like, you know, and, and, and what people used to put up with. And I managed to communicate this quite subtle thing. If you're doing, you can do great jokes, but if, if the idea of what you're, what it is you're finding funny is, is fairly straightforward, then however good the bit is, it's not, it's not that, it's not that subtle. You know what I mean? It's when you're communicating something that's quite a subtle idea and you still get a big belly laugh out of it. That's, that's really satisfying. I think. Brilliant. Last two. Uh, review yourself, honestly. Review myself? Yes, if you well, were to write it, just a two-line review for, uh, you know, if you were to, knowing what you know about you. Okay, of my current show, you mean? Uh, your, yeah, or uh, any, yeah, why not, current show. Okay. Oh, it's more, no, not, not your current show, you right. as a comic. You perform your comedy set in front of you, the reviewer. Oh, and uh, <laughs> what do you have to say about it? <laughs> um... God, it's very difficult to say. I suppose I would say um, Evans is a relaxed and assured performer who knows how to uh, elicit laughs from uh, the toughest of audiences. Uh, However, there is a suspicion that at the back of his mind, he too knows that this absurd persona (laughs) will one day surely be rendered redundant. 
by um, the, the pressures of evolving society. Very good, very good, very immediate. And uniquely, you referred to yourself by your surname, which I think is absolute comedy mileage there. Finally, are you happy? As a comedian or, or just as a person? Um, I'm not, it's, I, I'm balanced, I think, but um, I can certainly experience moments of extraordinary frustration. Uh, but they are usually to do with um, being stuck uh, in traffic on a train or in the house, unable to get to where I'm going. Once I'm in the kind of environment that I enjoy, like this, a conversation or um, performing or doing any of the things that I know that I like to do, then I'm fine. Thanks, Simon. (laughs) So that was Simon. Thank you very much to him for coming along. Thank you to Nathan Wood for producing this episode. Thank you to Matt Hoss for logging it. Uh, Thank you to everyone at Angel Comedy at the Bill Murray Pub for the recording space. And thank you to you on this happy occasion, episode 250 of this project that has been going on suddenly, I realise, for six years and has brought me enormous meaning. It's frequently made me very happy. It's frequently made me very tense. (laughs) It still continues to make me um, worry about my ability to, to, to keep churning out even the word churning is the wrong word but my fear that i'll simply churn stuff out um but it, it and my my worries that it will keep being good i think i'm getting even better at it um i am next year going to uh, not go to the edinburgh festival well i mean i'll probably go <laughs> it'll be my year off um so next year i'm talking 2019 um it'll be a year off and uh, and i will uh probably not spend all year writing a new show for it but maybe I'll do something up there of some sort I, I wouldn't be surprised but what I'm going to do with my year is uh, in, in the comedy the comedian's year starts in September and um you know that's when you start going god I've got to write I've got to do it all again now I've got to write another show I don't think I'm going to tour next year I don't think I'm going to write a new Edinburgh show I may break break either of those uh, plans but what I am going to do is try and grow the podcast and I'm going to try to just turn the dial up on the, on the amount of effort that already goes into it. I'm going to try and get over some of my anxieties about uh, booking bigger name guests. One of my things, listen, I, I go into this in detail in the extra content, but um, I think my anxiety at research is, um, is it holds me back because... Look, I really want Johnny Vegas on the pod. He's agreed to do it. I've got his agent's number. It's just a case of setting it up. But I haven't yet found the time to read his book. And when you get an act of that stature who's written a brilliant book, you can't interview until you've read his book. But that that's a, that's a good example of a thing I absolutely should do and, and get around to doing. But, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'll regret saying this later, as <laughs> I'm letting you in slightly too much, but... Um, with acts who have just years worth of material out there of sitcoms that I need to watch and all the rest of it. And it just cripples me and I get anxious and then I end up not inviting them on or not getting around to ringing um, because I worry about my ability to do the perfect job. So that is on my list of things to nail in September and to get over and make sure that I spend the next year really having the time to 
to focus on growing the podcast. So I hope you will continue to listen for the next 250 episodes as things change and grow and um, and all of that stuff. There's some new music coming our way soon as well, some new theme music, which uh, I can't wait to hear the next draft of, and uh, possibly some new graphics and, you know, twiddly stuff like that. But ultimately, and this isn't, this is probably in, instead of a, a post-amble or as, rather than as well as... Um, I just want to thank everybody. I've been doing this a few... I feel like I've done this a lot, but I suppose the last few years have been very good to me. Not only has the podcast afforded me a lot of... Um, oh, that's what I was saying, yes. Not only does it make me very anxious and stressed and tired, but it gives me enormous meaning. It really makes sense of my life. And my stand-up shows are always an attempt. I think art is an attempt to make sense of the world, right? Which sounds pretty clever, but I only think that because I read it um, in some unattributed source at college. It's all an attempt to make sense of the world. And my shows are always an attempt to make sense of the world and myself and my place in it and my emotions. And if you've if you've come along to the tour, there's a, there's a few left of those. If you're around in, in London, you can come go to the Soho Theatre website or go to comedianscomedian.com slash tour to find out about those ones. Cardiff is coming up still as well and Tring. Um, if you've come along to the tour or if you've ever seen my stand up live, you'll not, not just clips, but like a solid, you know, a show you will know that it's all an attempt to make sense of something. And this podcast, it occurs to me of late, has been a huge part of me making sense of what I am in the world. And for that, and for all of your kind attention, and your emails, and your communication, and your tweets, and the times when you've walked up to me and pressed cash into my hand and said something cool, or more likely had a brief but invigorating conversation about what the podcast means to you. For all of those things, I thank you. 250 episodes. Lovely. What a lovely... It's, is it a real milestone? I went all soppy at 200. I'm sure I'll go soppy again at 300. But 250. I keep wanting to say quarter century, but it isn't, is it? The, the quarter century times 10. Um... It's uh, it, it it is everything and nothing. It's just the numbers ticking around, isn't it? I always think that when you have a, a big birthday, I used to stress out about my birthdays, and then I realised that it, all it is is this. It's just the same as when you watch the numbers tick round on a digital clock, and you see that oh, it's twelve thirty four and fifty four seconds. One two three four five six. Oh, coo, you know, cuh. that's all a birthday is, isn't it? You just go oh look, the numbers have, have ticked round. So it's everything and nothing, and. Um, why not take the opportunity to thank you all for your continuing patronage and uh, financial support in some cases. Do join the Insiders Club. I'm really having a lot of fun with uh, the hardcore. Strictly for the hardcore, as the Happy Sideshow used to say. That takes me back. Um, so uh, there we there we go. 250 episodes. Lots more to come. I hope another 200. I hope another 750. Maybe when I get to 1,000, I might pack it in. <laughs> Maybe not. It's um, it's really fun talking to people and it's really fun listening to my guests and talking at you. These bits are, are very therapeutic, <laughs> as you can probably hear, by which I mean they have no value. Um, I, don't, I don't mean that about therapy. What I mean is they have no, no entertainment value. Um, so uh, thank you for listening. And uh, next, we've got some just belters. Robin Ince coming up. That's almost a two-parter. Uh, Paul Foote, 40 minutes 
of dense, quasi-impenetrable stuff about the science of comedy and uh, the maths involved in his writing. That's going straight on the extras, because to the casual listener, it will be so abstruse. So, um, oh God, have I said that word out loud? That's a very Stephen Fry sort of a word. I think I mean that word. Um, Nick Thune still to come. K. Trevor Wilson from over a year ago. Sorry, K. Trev, we'll get that out as soon as we can. Raymond and Timpkins, Edinburgh coming up, John Luke Roberts, uh, and uh, all some other exciting uh, non-white male guests that are currently booked. There's been a bit of a dearth of, uh, of uh, non-white, non-men recently, and I'm always keen to rectify that. So don't worry, I am aware of that, and uh, I'm taking steps to uh, diversify it up a little bit and get back in line with, uh, with the, normal, the normal custom at the podcast. So that's that. Wow, there we go. Um... Uh, extra content at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. I'll see you over there in the uh, the Slack app workspace channel. Talk about impenetrable. Who even knows what that is? You'll know if you sign up and get the sexy email that makes you feel part of the cool gang and, uh, and gives you various links to places where you can communicate with other members of the cool gang. And if you're unable to, uh, to support the show financially, then of course, thank you for all of your uh, likes, tweets, retweets, subscribes, comments, and all the times you've told a stranger or, or a friend, probably a friend, probably unlikely a stranger, <laughs> but extra points if you tell a complete stranger at random in a bus stop queue uh, about the Comedians Comedian podcast. And um, or, or did a thing on iTunes or Podcast Addict or Pocket Cast or Downcast or all the other cast things. Someone used the word cast referring to... Um, oh, if you listened this long, here's a treat... At the, I think I can announce this at the King's Place Podcast Festival, which is in October. Is it? Or September? September or October. It's after Edinburgh, so it exists in a completely different space to me. Um, the London Podcast Festival at King's Place uh, on the Sunday night in the headliner slot in a 400-seater. I am happy to announce here and officially that I will be interviewing, my guests will be, all four of the No Such Thing as a Fish podcast crew. So bloody well get involved and get your tickets for that. That is going to be absolutely enormous. I can't wait to get those very funny QI elves onto the show. Um, If you've not heard No Such Thing as a Fish, you don't need me to tell you about it. It's one of the biggest podcasts in the country. Um, But uh, it's the QI elves... um, talking about their favourite, introducing to each other their favourite real facts and uh, and being very funny about them. So that is going to be a huge amount of fun. And um, and that's that. Now that I've remembered that I have other promotional things to do, my Edinburgh show is at 2.50 every day at the Liquid Rooms Warehouse, which is off Cowgate uh, in Edinburgh, every day during the festival, from the first Saturday to the final Sunday, apart from Thursday the 16th. Yes, radical. Goldsmith takes off the middle Thursday. Who does that? Someone who's been to Edinburgh for 25 years. That's who. Um, So come along and see it. It's called End Of, and you can join the Facebook group or look on my uh, Stuart Goldsmith Comedian Facebook page, and you can see the very sexy new artwork, courtesy of Matt Crockett and Daniel England. So that's that. I mean, that is that. I've said that's that several times, but that is that. Is it? Yes, it's that. Speak to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.